health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. Today's parenting episode focuses on education. Of course, your child's education is one of the most vital parts of ensuring they develop a love of learning and ultimately grow up to be a successful, productive adult. We're specifically going to focus on the skills that are necessary to be developed so that your child does have a love for learning and continues to learn and build on their successes, again, not only in school, but throughout life as they get older. Here to talk to me today is Kelsey Komorowski. She has 16 years of experience working closely with students to develop the skills, mindsets, and attributes they need to thrive, not just in school, but as lifelong learners and thoughtful, productive humans. Kelsey loves empowering parents with the skills and knowledge to help their kids reach their potential while establishing positive household dynamics around school. She founded Como, a consulting company that focuses on working with students and parents in developing those skills needed for lifelong learning. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us. Can you start us off by talking about your background and how you founded Como? Sure. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I've, I've been an educator for 16 years now, and I've worn a lot of different hats in that time. I've been a tutor, a curriculum designer. Uh, my first job out of grad school was working with the Student Achievement Division here in Ontario. I was on the Research Evaluation Data Management Team, and my role there consisted of essentially collecting and analyzing data to understand student success initiatives and try to better understand how can we bridge achievement gaps for different student populations. Um, from there, and I'll, I'll keep this short to, to begin with because it's a whole other long story, but essentially I left the government to start my own consulting practice um, way back in, oh my goodness, um, 2013, uh, end of 2013. And I've been running my educational consulting firm, Como, ever since. And I'm really fortunate. I work with an incredible team of educators and practitioners, and uh, we are on a mission to remove school stress and struggle from the world and equip all students to think and learn and achieve to their potential. I'm going to just go into the big question, right? Which is, what is the definition of school learning or school teaching in my head that's sitting in a classroom, hearing a lesson? Let's say there's anywhere between 20 to 30 kids in a classroom, depending on where you're at in the world. And then there's a test that you put that's what you learned or what you think you learned <laughs> back out there. Uh, and then you move on to the next subject. As you mentioned with your background, of course, there's a lot of nuance after that as far as just student achievement. And I'm sure also it works for some kids and maybe doesn't work so well for others. But just to ground us, what would we define as school teaching? So I love that question so much. I've actually never been asked that before. So thank you, Greg, for the great question. I think that the number one thing that people conflate a lot of at least the families that we talk to our teens and our parents there's there's a bit of a myth and misconception that being taught to in the classroom equates to learning so teachers and we work very closely with a lot of teachers i have teachers on my team i absolutely adore teachers for the most part they are superheroes um teachers jobs is to deliver content right so a math teacher is delivering math content english teacher is delivering the english curriculum and and the teacher's job is to deliver the curriculum they teach to basically to the average student because their job is to ensure that as many students as possible pass to the next grade right 
And, and obviously again, I, cause I, <laughs> sometimes people come at me being like, how can you crap on teachers and all this stuff? And I'm like, I'm not at all. They're superheroes, but the reality of the school system, like most teachers are overburdened and they do their very best to differentiate instruction and to support individual learners. But at the end of the day, they cannot ensure that each child is learning. That's just not their job. Their job is to teach. And in the meantime, most of our teenagers, and I'm sure this will come back to COVID and quarantine and things that we've seen and learned, um, especially before COVID, that they just thought that as long as they're listening in class, they're being taught to, then that's kind of it. They do their homework and that's kind of it. But what we know to be true is that being an active learner, it's not something that most students have naturally, and they're not aware for the most part that they're lacking it. So I think as far as understanding, beginning to kind of anchor or thinking in the difference between classroom teaching versus the other pieces of student success is that the bulk of learning happens at home. The bulk of the learning happens when the student is actually processing and understanding and retaining information. And that, I'll stop there. Does that make sense? It does. And I've got a follow-up question to that. So the at-home part, does that mean homework? <laughs> I guess I'll ask it even just a stupid question like that. Or is that some other kinds of interactions after the bell rings at the end of the school day and it's some other type of setting altogether that's completely detached from their school day? Totally. Greg, no, that's a great... We're just getting right into it here. I love it. Okay. So I think that the most useful thing at this point, there's there's two ways there's two camps, okay, that students fall into when it comes to school. Camp one, and this is the vast majority of students, like I would venture to say like 98%. They come home, they drop their bag, they procrastinate a little or a lot, and then when they finally sit down to do their work, they are reacting to what has been assigned to them. So they look at, okay, math, I got to do a worksheet, or I have this thing for English, or I have a test. And they, they just go about going through the motions to get it done and off their plate, so they can go do stuff they actually want to do, like see their friends and play video games, right? It's all about doing it. Let's get it done so they can go and like enjoy the non-academic joys of life. Um, so while that's the most common way to do school, it's very much subject by subject. Let me go through the motions to get it done. That is the worst way to do school. That's very much, it is extremely limited. There is so much potential that just stays on the table because they're just going through the motions. That's the student camp. Camp two which is this is our niche and this is what we help families transition into is, is where they're learning. This is the learner camp where they're not just doing it to get it off their plate. They are actively managing their coursework. They're strategizing. And importantly, when they sit down to do their work, they are engaging in the material. They're actively aware of the skills that they're using to process and understand and retain their information. They can articulate what their executive functioning looks like in practice and how it's helping them to learn and retain and grow as a thinker. Most students, when we first talk about that, they look at me like I've got three heads, right? They're like, yeah, I think I'd just rather do it to get it done, you know? Um, but that's the, the second camp, really, when teenagers shift into that second camp and they learn how to learn and they learn what they're actually capable of, for the most part, they're shocked. Like the, the shock that I get, because initially with teenagers, I'm confronted by a lot of eye rolls, right? Like, 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 okay, whatever. But then they actually do it. They do the thing. They learn how to engage. They learn how to learn. And they're so taken aback by what they're actually capable of. And they feel so much more worthy even. Honestly, that's been one of the kind of really interesting side effects of doing this work of showing kids how to learn is they come away feeling like a greater sense of worthiness as a human. They're like, I didn't realize I was this smart. And it's the coolest thing in the world to witness. Maybe linking that interaction with 
I totally know what you're saying. And I'm sure I was guilty of this <laughs> when I was a student of, right, you just want to throw your books where as far away from you as you possibly can. And right, whether that's video games or dare I say social media, whatever else is going on. Is there also a goal to connect the learning with where their interests may lie? So let's stick with video games, I guess, for example. Well, okay, you're learning, let's say, a specific type of math that could have some sort of bridge to coding, which guess what? Somebody built that video game, things like that. Is that also something that is worthwhile to try to connect together with their interests? It definitely is. And we always encourage our, our students and our families in general, because we work a lot with parents too, of course, um, to to explore and develop their interests and, and really endeavor to make those bridges. However, our specific focus, and this is just because we're pretty niche, right? We specialize in skill building through schoolwork. So our niche is in helping them understand skills as the connective tissue, so to speak, between all of their subjects, as well as the other buckets of their life. Right. And we get this a lot with a lot of kids and a lot of parents being like, well, he does. They do really well in the things that they like. Right. Like he loves English and hates math. So obviously he's doing better in English. And it's so common. But what we help our kids do, it's kind of a reframe where it's like, you know what? All of those externalities, those subjects that are outside of you, irrelevant. What you're being taught doesn't even hold a candle to how you are learning. So we flip it so that the starting point is always the student themselves, which for most people and especially our teenagers, like that's a pretty beloved topic, right? To like explore themselves, talk about themselves, think about themselves. So that's, that's what we encourage them to do. It's like, if you don't like math or you love it, either way, we're focused on the skills, right? Understanding of the content follows, but looking at the skills, looking at even, you know, critical thinking or communication. And what does that look like in math versus English versus playing video games? You want to up-level and go to that next level. How can we strategize? Really helping them understand that the foundational core skill sets that, that they need to succeed in school are the same ones that will carry them to succeed in whatever they want to do. Like we have kids, oh my gosh, we're, we get to work with so many cool kids. We have kids who are like setting personal bests and track, right? And it's they're using the skills that they're learning through the schoolwork to do that. Or they want to do, we have like Dungeons and Dragons masters. That's the thing apparently. Like they, And they want to be the best master ever. And it's like, okay, how can we do that? Like let's work on our communication skills. Like it's all, it's all stemming from the core skills, whether it's the academics, personal interests, and eventually down the line, of course, professional success too, very much skills-based. Sales 101, right, is what is everybody's favorite topic themselves? <laughs> so <laughs> I think uh, the sooner, especially when you're dealing with kids, the sooner you realize that, that that's how you're going to hold their interest, uh, the, the better off you'll be. Let me ask this, is there certain subjects that are easier to make that connection of how they learn and how they're building skills than others? That's a really great question. I think, and I'm sorry, this is a bit of a non-answer because I think it really depends on the student. Um, some students are really open to learning how to learn and to considering what their different skill sets are and what they look like. Um, other students, not so much. Uh, we work with a lot of students who have been struggling and stressing for years, and they they truly think deep down that they're not good at school. They might think that they're genuinely not smart. There's a lot of stigma and shame associated with school stress and struggle. So a lot of our kids to begin with, they're just not there. They're not in a mindset to, to be as open to that. So we really meet each student like where they're at, right? Where are we at right now? And then identifying, you know, where are the, the spaces that we want to bridge these gaps so that we can create that foundation and that openness to exploring those things. 
Um, but suffice to say, I guess it's fair to say that definitely whatever their natural interests are, right. Whatever they love, like if they love writing, if they love poetry, if they love gaming, you know, that's always a safe bet to start there and, and really build rapport and help them start to build that openness to, to exploring other spaces. When meeting the student where they are, how many different avenues are there for the way that they learn or what will keep them motivated? I imagine as many as the stars. Yeah. And you know, it's such a, that's actually such an interesting question because there's two answers to that. On the one hand, it's what you just said. Like each student, each learner is unique, right? They each have their own strengths and values and passions. However, what we found over the years and before we, we launched our, our current flagship program, um, which is an eight week program and it essentially just shows students how to learn and achieve to their potential in school. Um, we did a lot of research, like years, I'm talking years of research, all different learners, different curricula all over North America. And what we found, and this is really the basis of our model, is that skill building is universal. So we get a lot of questions from parents being like, well, my kid has ADD or dysgraphia or this, and they're a visual learner and they have to do this and they have to do that. And early early on, I was like, oh my goodness, like this is so much. How are we ever going to support each student in, in succeeding, right? Because they're all so different. But through testing, and again, like my job at the ministry was data analysis, and that's still a very big part of what we do, right? We look at the data, like what's working, what's not. The logic of skill building doesn't change. Doesn't matter about the learner profile. Doesn't matter about the curriculum. Doesn't even matter about the language. We work with kids in Quebec who are in French curriculum. Like the logic of learning how to think, how to communicate, how to manage time. Okay. And those are three of our core five skills, critical thinking, communication, time management. Same. Any student, again, if they're open to it, any student can learn those skills and they learn them in very much the same way, right? Our pedagogy, we know if a student follows certain steps, they're going to build out these skills. Doesn't matter their profile. Doesn't matter anything else. It's like, it's like if you start to, you know, eat really healthy and go to the gym and drink a lot of water, like you're going to see some physical changes. It's just what happens. It's the same with our brain. I am definitely tracking with you. What's running through my head is if you've ever seen on LinkedIn, there's this certain list, I won't get them all right, but it says time management, one that you mentioned, and a few others. And it's under the header of these are things that don't take talent to be able to do. Uh, you know, anybody can do these things. And I'm a little conflicted whenever I read that because to some extent, it's like, well, there is some talent in time management, which predicts whether or not you're going to show up on time. And the work ethic, yeah, you know, has its own set of components, I guess, potentially to that. But the core things you're highlighting, depending on, or, or for any career that somebody picks, these are things that will apply and are appreciated. And, and that's kind of why my mind is going to that list that I've seen many, many times for people's viral posts that these, these are skills that people will appreciate uh, no matter what you do. Totally. And I, I'm, I'm laughing because I've not, I've not seen a post like that where it's like, there's some degree of talent or there's no talent, you know, like whichever side you stand on. Um, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's not even a question of talent. I would replace that word with mindset just based on my own personal experience. Like if kids, if a kid is convinced that they can't manage time because they're ADHD or whatever, like that will be their reality. If they have a mindset and they build beliefs that, yeah, I have, I have ADHD and focusing can be hard for me and blah, 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 but I can definitely build it out, they will improve, right? Like it's just what they tell themselves has such a massive impact beyond any sort of like innate, you know, talent, so to speak. And then the other, the other point there, 
Greg, honestly, that is such a huge part of our work. Like we tell our kids how you show up in school is a very good indicator of how you show up in life. Like a lot of our kids are cutting corners, whatever, whatever. And for us, like schoolwork is really, we just use it as the vehicle for introspection and growth. Because at the end of the day, struggling students do not magically wake up with the skills to thrive. They do not hit a certain age and are like gifted the skills to become autonomous, strong communicators who take initiative and ownership. It doesn't happen. And we've seen it played out. I've been doing this. It makes me feel very old, but I've been doing this long enough now that like a lot of our kids and a lot of families that we've worked with um, or even talked to, but not worked with. And we've seen the difference of like kids going from middle school to high school to college to career, that whole spectrum. And I, you know what, I'll just, I'll leave it here. I think probably Greg, both of us in our respective workplaces have experienced the incompetence that stems from a lack of strong foundational skills. And we can build those skills and we should be explicitly and systematically building those skills in starting in middle school. Like the fact that we don't is bananas to me. Anyway, I will not go off on a tangent. I promise. (laughs) Well, yeah, I didn't even mention critical thinking like you talked about before, but yes, of course (laughs) that, that one also fits the same categories of universal skill and something that you should continue to work on gosh, yes, you're right. I I can certainly point to instances where I'm working with somebody that needs to be told exactly what to do every single step of the way, can't necessarily take a directive that's high level in nature and figure out, you know, the best way to achieve it. So it, it is absolutely noticeable. I won't necessarily say that it's correlated to age <laughs> uh, necessarily <laughs> and i'll also that. say yeah, that's right and but um i am curious though it's been a while since i've been in school and gosh i think wikipedia was first in its infancy and of course the teachers would say no you can't really use that as a resource and then i think eventually it got to well you have to use a certain amount of library books <laughs> and, and you can use an online resource and as i understand it now pretty much it's understood that most things are going to be online resources. My question is kind of related to critical thinking. Do you have a thought on knowing where to go to get information versus actually knowing the information? How has that evolved and does it relate to kind of life skills? A hundred percent. Oh my goodness, Greg. I love that question. Um, again, not, I've not been asked that before and it's so, I think it taps into so many critical things. Like on the one hand, it makes me think of what we call, and actually before COVID hit, we called it the epidemic of, I don't know, where we ask a kid, okay, well, how do we, you know, they have to write an essay or they need to figure out the difference between a theme or a motif. Okay. How can we do that? I don't know. Okay. Take, take a second. Let's think. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. It's like, no, but you, you didn't think. And it's, it's actually, I, I laugh about it and, and we see it all the time, but it's, it's deeply alarming because so many of our students truly have, have, do not have that ability to understand that they can go from, I don't know, to, oh, I've got it using their own resources and intellect. They, so many students think they have to be taught and explained. So absolutely knowing something versus knowing how to figure something out. I think that really hits at the heart of why learning how to learn is so critical because otherwise, and resourcefulness is one of our key values, right? How do we, how do we get resourceful? How do we show a lot of our kids don't even like to say that they don't know because they're like, they're like, Oh, whatever. I don't need to know. Or they'll put up, you know, our teenagers put up all sorts of defenses. They don't like to admit if they don't know something because it makes them feel stupid. 
So we have this cultivating like resourcefulness in conjunction with intellectual humility, which is kind of the fancy term for being like, hey, acknowledging what you don't know is a great starting place. It's the only way to learn, right? Learning requires vulnerability. A lot of kids are not okay with that. So even just that, recognizing, oh, I don't know this. I'm not sure how to figure it out, but I know that I can try different avenues. I can look something up online. I can Google it. I can ask a teacher. I can ask, you know, whoever, whatever it is. Um, for them to to feel confident and capable with going from, I don't know, to, oh, okay, there we go. I got it. I'd say that's one of the most invaluable life skills that we could teach our kids. And every, honestly, every assignment in school is just an opportunity to do that. Relating that concept to at least even my day-to-day, I do a lot of project management work. And one of the first things that I'll do, even if I'm learning something brand new and the whole team has been doing the process for a really long time, is once I get enough of the pieces of how it's supposed to work, I will do a process flow and introduce it back to everybody saying, I know this is wrong. (laughs) I am fine saying, there's no way that I got this absolutely correct the first time. Now tell me where I'm wrong, which I wonder if that's maybe even a teaching method as as well that I always say, I get way more reactions from putting something in front of people that has incorrect information on it than I do just a blank screen because blank screen, nobody wants to start, but man, if they know something's wrong, especially if I've assigned something to them, (laughs) they're going to be quick to say why it you know, shouldn't belong to them and, and sparks a conversation. So yes, for my day to day, I embrace being wrong all the time. <laughs> and, and I think it's, I think it's really a helpful way to go. And maybe even brings people's guards down. Now, again, I don't know if that would apply necessarily to the teacher student relationship, but it's, it's worth recognizing that everybody uh, is in that vulnerable state of not knowing quite frequently. Absolutely. And it, it definitely does apply. Um, again, from, from my perspective and my own experience working with families and teens, there's, for most of our kids, like they're so accustomed to being in a subordinate position, right? They're accustomed to authority figures, teachers and parents and being told what to do. And on the one hand, like when it comes to like well-being and obviously they're kids, like, of course, right? They, that is, there needs to be safeguards and all of that. But when it comes to learning, I think it's one of those spaces that, that top-down and kind of authoritarian relationship does so much more harm than anything, um, not least because most most teens, they, they really do think that adults are different. That's like they'll hit, like that they will, like, oh, I'll get, I'm in my, when I'm in my 20s and things will change or I'll know these things. And like to help them understand, like, no, adults are just you, but older. <laughs> like that there's not, like, you're not going to have this, or, you know what, maybe, maybe you'll have an awakening, who knows. But for, for most people, it's like, you know, as you age, you're not going to turn into a different person necessarily, right? And so for them to to really normalize, and this is one of the big reasons that we started working with parents um, a few years ago, like to normalize and model out lifelong learning, intellectual humility, to be like, I don't know it all. I do mess up, right? For parents to, and what we encourage, and (laughs) a lot of parents are resistant to this at first, but it's invaluable when they actually lean into it. It's like, don't, don't be perfect. Don't try to model out that you're perfect and that you have your, I was going to swear that you have your stuff together. Like it's way more valuable to have explicit conversations and model out, man, I messed up. I dropped the ball. I really mismanaged my time this week. Here's what I've learned from it. Here's what I'm going to do different because that way you're building shared language around skill building. And you are also building rapport and empathy with your kids because they're going through similar things with dropping the ball or with feeling like they didn't do their best with school. 
So yeah, normalizing and modeling out that vulnerability is super critical. Yes, or at least I hopefully practiced some of that in my daily life and for the reasons that you just mentioned. And heck, if your kids are pretty young, I think that also presumably is going to open up the lines of communication with your kids. So when they get into those tween and teen years where they can start to become more introverted, I guess, at least as far as their child parent relationship, maybe it can make that less of an issue, especially if they do have a problem like in school or socially or otherwise. So maybe even getting into that rhythm and pattern of, um, yeah, being vulnerable or for example, one thing I try to say to my kids is, if I tell you to do something, I will do my best to give you the reason behind doing it. Th- that said, when I say, why did you do this thing? I don't want to hear, I don't know. <laughs> that same <laughs> that same familiar answer that, that you mentioned you get when you try to challenge somebody. So yeah, there is definitely a dialogue I think to be had there. Is there any other traits for parents that you either try to break them of habits or you try to pull out certain encouraging behavior? Oh, yes. Um, definitely. I think the the number one thing, and this seems to be one of the most shared challenges, um, and we do, we have like parent coaching as a part of, of our work. And we parents, most parents, because you're amazing, you're superheroes, you want your child to succeed, you want them, it's really hard to watch them struggle or to watch them fail. So one of the number one things that like basically from week one, we establish is parents stop solving your child's problems. Stop writing teachers on their behalf. Stop checking their platform five times a day. Like, and again, I'm talking in the context of their own learning and growth. I'm not talking like they're being bullied. Don't write their teacher. Obviously not. No, like I'm talking just they, if you don't give them the time and the space to learn how to stand on their own two feet, they will not. And Greg, I cannot tell you how many students, probably half of the, of all of our families over the years totally flew by in high school, you know, everything went more or less pretty well. They get to college and they're failing out because mom and dad always helped them. They never built out the skill set to navigate more complicated material. They never built out the resilience to know that, hey, just because I didn't do well, I can do better next time. So the number one thing, and I always we often um issue a challenge to a lot of our parents where it's like seven days of awesome. Don't check your child's platform. Don't check about their missing work. Like that's the number one thing. And it's really hard for, for most parents where it's like just stepping back and letting, giving that time and space to their kid because they don't want to see them fail. But you know what I tell them? Cause obviously I don't want to see them fail either, but better that they learn now than when the stakes are a lot higher, like give them that time and space, trust in their ability to build the skills they need to succeed. It takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. They will fail. For the most part, it's not a super linear thing, right? It, it's back and forth, two steps forward, one back, but it works. And trusting that they can learn and build those skills is imperative. And if they just step in and keep solving the problems, it's not going to be good down the road. Another quick anecdote, actually, just in conversations within my extended family, I guess I'll say the last couple of weeks, uh, my oldest niece is getting ready to drive and somehow the topic of pumping gas came up and not her but talking about another uh, kid her age we're saying yeah getting ready to drive and we realized she doesn't know how to 
pump her own gas, <laughs> which also then got us into that concept of there's very few states, at least in the U.S. anymore, that have full service where they'll actually pump your gas. But whenever that happens, you know, kind of it's weird <laughs> for who knows and who doesn't know how to do it, which brought up a story I remember that my dad did to me. I couldn't have been more than five or six, maybe even younger. And uh, there's that little lever that turns the gas on and off. I didn't know that. I just thought that's where the the pump actually sat. So I flipped it up, just kind of playing with it. And my dad said, you're going to go inside. You're going to tell them that it got turned off and that they need to turn it back on. And I did it, <laughs> you know, sort of solving my own problems after that. Now, of course, I pick on him now and say, yeah, you know, you ogre made me go and do something like that. Oh my God, I'm five years old. <laughs> but that's the concept, right? It's like, okay, I learned the thing I did. It's, it's not an unreasonable cause and effect, right? That I did the thing. I have to solve it, whether it was an accident or not. There is something that's going to happen uh, as consequence of the choices that you make. And so me hopefully realizing that will use that again, like you say, not solve my kids' problems. So uh, you can't always be there. And essentially you can make them inept uh, in their day-to-day learning, et cetera, et cetera. So I I think that is a huge concept to make sure that people understand and also easier said than done. Uh, You know, anybody that doesn't have kids probably saying, yep, that all makes sense. Well, you know, when you, when you actually have the kids and, you see them be bad at something or whatever the case may be. Or again, the toddler age having a fit because they don't want to do whatever the, the item is and just want it fixed. Uh, again, definitely easier said than than done. Um, let me switch gears just a little bit going back to the school learning and then afterwards. So there's also just standard tutoring, right? Uh, that presumably goes right along with school learning and I, I would call it passing the test, right? Uh, What's your thoughts on that as a supplement to the classroom? I have pretty strong thoughts on traditional tutoring. Um, not favorable. So I, I was a t- I was a tutor for a lot of years. Um, so I, I know the industry pretty well, and that's one of the reasons I know that it doesn't work. Uh, traditional tutoring is subject specific. It's top down. It's very transactional and short sighted. Like it replicates classroom dynamics. So the student is struggling in chemistry or English then there seemed to be needing a chemistry or an English tutor. And it's just to to me, because I've been doing this for so long, it blows my mind. I'm like, there's that saying, oh my goodness. And I'm going to blank on what the saying is. And I use it all the time. It's not coming, but essentially, oh yeah, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. So if a kid is struggling with chemistry, the answer is not more chemistry instruction. And it's like, it blows my mind. Like, what are you doing? But that's, that's so dominant, right? Like our edu- our current paradigm, it's very subject centric, top down, let me teach you. And at the end of the day, what I'll just say, I'm like, you know what? You can have the best teacher, the best tutor in the world. If the student does not have the skill to learn to their potential, it will not matter the real root of the struggle. And I'm not saying you don't need subject specific help. Not at all. Like we have STEM experts, we have a Spanish specialist, like some hundred percent. Sometimes you do, but the question of delivering content and teaching somebody as opposed to enabling their own learning, it's a wildly different ballgame. Um, so for traditional tutoring, it doesn't work. It's really short term and transactional. Like it might help you pass the next test or essay to your point, but it's not actually solving the problem. It's not preparing you to learn how to think right? Which is at the end of the day, how you're going to succeed within and between all of your subjects and long after school is over. Can you think, can you make good decisions? And that's a theme, gosh, I feel like I've read in 
other areas as far as getting so used to pass the test, just like you mentioned, I think I mentioned as well, which, yeah, that gets you through school where you're at. But especially if you have any interest in starting a business, being an entrepreneur, something like that, you're not going to always be fed the answers and then just make sure you remember. Now, granted, there is a ton of stuff out there with Google. That's why my, my question about knowing where to find information versus being able to come with it, come up with it all yourself. Uh, there is a balance in between there. But yeah, if you're expecting to be uh, literally hand fed all the information really with the outcome of, in this case, I, I mean, I was guilty of this for sure. I always said, I have a very, uh, average IQ, but my memory happens to be pretty good. So I was the king of memorize it, regurgitate it on a test and purge <laughs> as soon as, yeah. that, as soon as it was over. So th- that's not super helpful on the skill building. And, and again, for, for those life skills. Uh, well, of course it feels like I can't have any, uh, conversations without talking about COVID and lockdowns and so on. And speaking, of course, being passionate, like you mentioned, for the traditional tutoring, I definitely have some very specific opinions, as I'm sure most parents do with the way that school ended up being this past year. Now, you being in in Canada, me in the U.S., I I can't say I know all of the differences that that have gone on from, from one country to another, but talk a little bit about what your experience has been in what you're trying to drive home for your students and what has had to change, if anything, to your approach with uh, this past year. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll note, because we work with families all over North America, and it was really fascinating, um, <laughs> somewhat in a gruesome way, when COVID first hit and the schools first shut down, because um, for for me, at least, I didn't see massive differences between like, you know, Canada versus the US. It was really widespread as far as some schools or districts like had pre-existing digital infrastructure that really facilitated the shift to online, whereas others did not and like literally just didn't have school for like a month or two. So that just alone, it was really from what I saw, like a district by district thing. Um, but the <laughs> so it's to, to answer your question um, concisely to begin with. What COVID, really what COVID did, it illuminated for most families what we have known to be true forever. Again, our niche is very specific. It is skill building through schoolwork. We know most students do not know how to learn. They're not taught. They don't know how to think critically. They don't know how to manage their time because they're not taught. When kids started learning at home or quote unquote being taught to at home, trying to learn at home, And I mean, our business just like skyrocketed when COVID hit because parents were calling being like, my kid doesn't know how, like they're seeing firsthand. They don't know how to learn. They don't know how to self-direct. They don't know how to self-regulate. They don't know how to deal with procrastination. Um, Obviously, there is a whole other mental health and well-being component to what happened with COVID and online learning and social isolation. Um, So there was definitely those factors to take into consideration with skill building because it obviously was just kind of a shared I would call it a shared trauma, honestly, that everybody went through, and especially our kids um, who were robbed of so much, right? Especially kids like graduating high school, there was a lot of grieving going on. Um, but when it came to the actual skill building and the actual learning piece, that was the main thing was really just seeing, talking to so many parents who were like, you know, felt like they had to be a teacher because their kids couldn't learn without really consistent, um, like what you said earlier, being fed the instruction. 
Um, so if anything, like the silver lining of that for us was that people saw that and that kids themselves were like, well, I don't feel motivated. So in terms of like, what did we do different? We didn't change our methods or models, but there were certainly certain things that became like, you know, that we had to emphasize. So for example, motivation and procrastination were a big one. Every parent, every kid, I'm just not motivated. I'm just not motivated. And that, you know, goes into really interesting conversations like most kids and a lot of parents, surprisingly, and Greg, I don't know your opinion on this. I'd be curious to know your what you think, but like, there's this common myth that you have to feel motivated to, to do stuff. And we know that it's quite often like the opposite. Like you have to start doing things to feel motivated. And that, that alone, like most of my kids just look at me like I have five heads, like what? But it's true. It's like, you're, what are you just going to wait to be mo- like, it's no, you're never going to do stuff. And exactly why then it's like, they have 15 missing assignments, right? Cause oh, I'm not motivated. And so even that to help them reframe, take ownership, take action to motivate themselves, even like just that alone has been huge. And it's been a really cool I'd say it's a gift, right? When parents, like when we work together and we can give their kids that understanding of how to self-motivate, it's life-changing. That alone, game changer. Yeah, a couple of maybe anecdotes or or things that I've recently come across to that same point. One of which was, again, for us adults that (laughs) have that motivation problem, it was saying to use a five-minute rule, i.e., say you're going to do whatever the task you've been avoiding for five minutes. And I think it falls into what you're talking about that the idea is once you get rolling and you get through that first five minutes, you're going to keep going because you've gotten interested in what the task is and hopefully are a little more motivated to get to the final goal. And Hey, even if not, well, you're five minutes closer to finishing (laughs) that, that particular item, uh, even though you, you know, you really don't want to go after that. So I, I think that is definitely true. That's something I've even been trying to implement a little bit in my day to day is, is just that if you're really, really dreading it or, Another example, of course, is for working out. I was just about to say, yeah, Greg, like, honestly, most days I'm like, all right, five minutes of cycling or five minutes of yoga, and then you get going. And it's like, okay, but that's such a beautiful example of how this stuff, it really is for success in life, right? Like whatever it is that you want to be doing, because there's going to be so many things that (laughs) that you're not motivated to do. So little tricks and reframes like that are so helpful for living our best life, for sure. Something else that's hard to remember (laughs) in your day-to-day life is if I'm always on vacation, then I'm not looking forward to vacation. (laughs) If you do the hard stuff, then when you either see the fruits of your labor or when you're doing something different that maybe you were looking forward to, uh, you appreciate it more. You know, Christmas is once a year and that's why it's special, right? (laughs) It is because of that. So, and, and people probably don't think of that procrastination, not being motivated, not caring about any particular thing, I, I think the same can happen. It sort of robs you of uh, the ups and downs that make the ups worth recognizing and appreciating. Yeah, I could not agree more, 100%. This is a great segue. Speaking of vacation, <laughs> I know you're a pretty avid traveler, and I I, I'm curious about your thoughts of any connection between traveling and Again, just life skills. I, I will preface that with I am a huge proponent for people to travel. I definitely 
them also an experience purchaser versus stuff purchaser for anybody that will listen because I think it uh, is something you appreciate a whole heck of a lot more. And again, just gives you a better perspective. Uh, give me some of your quick hits for best travel moments and places to go. And then again, do you relate uh, the educational experience to travel? Oh my goodness. I love this question so much. I could, we could like chat for a whole other hour for this. Um, but I'll, I'll try to, <laughs> to not go off on a tangent. So as far as, you know, travel and learning a hundred percent, and there's so many, I mean, honestly, there's probably a hundred different ways that, that it helps. Like just from the one like practical skill set perspective, researching, critically evaluating places you want to go, planning out a trip, logistics, like all that stuff, even just leading in to, to deciding to take a trip and planning it out and making it happen is huge. Parents, I encourage you, involve your kids in your trip planning. It's an incredible skill building experience. And then actually traveling when when you're in, even if it's you know a different state or city or let alone a different country or part of the world, it's incredibly humbling to experience a different slice of reality. I think especially for teenagers, there's an assumption that their life is the way that life is. And to give these different perspectives of like, no, that's how it is for you. But there's whole other ways of thinking and value sets. Um, it's incredibly humbling. I think it's incredibly important in building a shared concept of humanity, right? There's so much bad shit going on in the world. Um, sorry, excuse me, my swearing. Um, but it's to to really help kids understand like the universality of, of humans, I think is so important that a human can live a different way, speak a different language, but you're still you're still both humans at the end of the day. Um, and I think that would, you know, that goes a long way in combating ignorance um, and hatred, um, especially when it comes to, you know, different ideologies or different lifestyles, things like that. Um, and then I also just think too, with, with the learning, like there's so much openness, right? You have to be open to be traveling and have a good experience with it. It's the same with learning, right? Like you've got to be open. If you think that you don't need to learn anything, just like if you think that you don't need to travel, like you're missing out basically on the riches of life. Like I'm really convinced of that. Um, and then the resourcefulness too is another huge one. Like we said, like when you're lost in a foreign country and don't speak the language, like how are you going to get by? Like I've had that happen. I've been in a taxi in Cairo and I'm like, I don't even know where we're going. I didn't have a smartphone at the time. Like I don't speak air. Like what do you do? you know, or when you get pickpocketed in Barcelona, like I did, <laughs> you have to go report it to the police. Like there's just, there's so many experiences. And I obviously wouldn't advise like either of those things, but it's just like when it comes to like problem solving and resourcefulness and like developing your confidence in yourself of like, okay, I'm a capable autonomous human. I can deal with hard things if they happen. Um, it's, it's so important. I think travel is pure magic. And especially I would add on to that, Greg, like learning a second language, it's like a portal to a different planet. Um, I myself am very fortunate. I learned French and Spanish and I got to spend, I guess this goes to your other question, like top travel hits. Favorite country is Scotland. Um, I was on a scholarship exchange my third year of university. I spent the year at St. Andrews and it was absolutely one of the most incredible experiences. Um, Spain, second favorite country. Um, I spent multiple summers in Spain um, going to camp, actually. We lived in France for many years, and my parents sent me off to summer camp in Spain, which is where I learned Spanish. And I spent time in Madrid and Marbella and Barcelona. Um, and yeah, I love Spain. Um, oh, my goodness. I, I'll stop there. I've, talk, I've talked a lot. I'll stop there for now. <laughs> actually, I feel like a lot of people I've talked to will say Spain in particular. And gosh, hopefully I'm not 
shortchanging people's travel aspirations, but at least for my circle, whenever people say Europe, I hear Italy, of course, a lot, definitely the UK, whether that's, uh, or Scotland or Ireland and anywhere sort of in, in that area, uh, Spain tends to not come up that much. However, whenever I get the chance in my local community to talk to people from a European country, Spain comes up all the time, actually. So <laughs> that's something else I would encourage people to do is, yeah, when you're not even traveling, but if you come across somebody that is born and raised from a different area, ask them where they would go, uh, you know, in, in that area. And um, yeah, Madrid, I specifically remember uh, there, there's a guy that said, Madrid is just the, the greatest place. You definitely got to gotta go there. So Spain was not necessarily on my list maybe a few years ago, but again, I've, I've heard very similar <laughs> descriptions because resounding endorsements from many, many people. Uh, so that, that's great. And I will admit, I think you're right on about the language part. I did the right thing by taking Spanish in high school, did the wrong thing by not basically living in an area where it was the predominant language to keep up with it. And, uh, I am, you can't even call me like conversational. <laughs> it's just a little bit, but no, no, yeah, bueno. no bueno. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I'll keep my smartphone with its translator app on it, if nothing else. <laughs> um, um, cause, cause that's one that would be tough for me to get back on the bandwagon on. So uh, let me give you one more closing question here. Uh, we've talked about a lot of the parent interactions with their kids to set up the kids for success. If you could give one piece of advice for the parents, whether that's mindset or a, a certain habit, what would that be? Just one, eh? <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna a bit of a, a cheat answer here. I think it's tied as far as you know. If there's one thing that you, that you've got to do to to really help set your kid up to live their best life, right? To be successful, whatever that means to them, um, it would be. And, and we've covered it already, actually. But it's it's step back. Okay, give them the time and the space to have their own introspection and to figure out what they want for themselves and why they want it on their own terms. There's just no substitute for that buy-in when they get to know themselves and when they connect with themselves. And then the flip side of that is yeah, when you step back, you have to give them the tools to stand on their own two feet. You can't step back and just expect them to get it. So actively, and this is again, this is what literally what we do, but like actively showing them you know, how do we think? How do we time manage? How do we do those things so that they can ultimately solve their own problems? Right. And I suppose maybe that's the neat little bow I should have wrapped it in is stop solving their problems, give them the skills and the mindsets to solve their own problems. Very cool. Well, Kelsey, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Before I let you go, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact info where they can find you on social media? And if you have any promotions going on? Totally. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, for sure. So you can email me directly at kelsey at comoconsulting.com. It's K-O-M-O consulting.com. And then we have a website. We've got so many awesome resources and student and parent stories and things like that. And that's just comoconsulting.com. And we also, we do, we have a handful of calls each week. They're free learning and achievement audits that my team and I do. They're about 45 minutes. Um, it's with parents and students and they're really fun. They're really about helping teenagers understand what's possible. That school doesn't have to suck. So if uh, we encourage you to book a call also, um, if your kid isn't totally happy with school. And otherwise, Greg, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. And it was really an honor to be on with you today. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I'll put all of your information into the show notes to make sure that it's easy for folks to find you. Again, Kelsey, I appreciate you joining me and we'll be in touch. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at SuburbanFolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle SuburbanFolk. Thank you for listening to my daddy.